Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you all. You know what time it is. It's time for the Drive Time Show and we're here with you live for the next two hours or so to discuss with you a range of topics. And of course, like I said, this is a live show. Let me put the mic up a little bit so you can hear me a little bit more clear. The number to call if you want to contribute to today's show is 0208687 Or if you're social media savvy, of course, you can get in touch with us uh, on Twitter or at Instagram at Voice of Islam UK and we'll be taking in your comments and your views throughout the show. So stay tuned with us and today of course we're talking on a plethora of issues and we're going to be starting off with child labour. Very heavy topic and normally when you hear the word child labour you wouldn't be mistaken to assume that we might be talking about something that's prevalent in less economically developed countries but no. We're not talking about less economically developed countries today. Today, we're talking about child labor being a problem in none other than the US and also other majority economically developed countries in the West. And this is something which, although you may not have heard about too much, is alarmingly quite prevalent in modern society. So we're going to be taking a look at this. Why on earth are we still seeing child labor prevalent in modern society and what are we supposed to do to try and curb it should we even curb it is it okay some may argue to let it be so we're going to be looking at all of these things the moral ethics behind this and some practical solutions we do have a guest as well who we're going to be calling on to give their expert insight into this topic as well so like i said this isn't about a less economically developed country. As you may imagine, no, we're talking about the United States, where we, there is a worrying trend on the rise, where more children are being made to work when they should be studying and playing. Well, this is what most people feel. And we want to know, what do you think? Because let's, let's kind of stop here a minute, maybe tr- track back 100 years ago. 100 years ago isn't even that much even a thousand years ago, but at least a hundred years ago in Victorian England, even where I'm from, if it was back then British India, for example, you had, let's call, let's not call them children because they weren't even seen as, as so at that time, but you had people who were 12 years old, 15 years old, and they were working in labor out in the field, in their farms, with their parents, etc., etc. That was the norm probably 100 years ago in British India. Here in Victorian England, if we talk about 200 years ago, you had chimney sweepers at the, as young as the age of three, maybe four or five years old. Sounds ridiculous, right? You couldn't even imagine it. I mean, I have a, a three-year-old child at home right now. I could never imagine my child being told to get up in the morning, put on, you know, whatever they used to wear. I'm assuming a, a, a coat because it's going to be chilly in the morning and get a broom, climb up to the top of a roof a very dangerous Victorian roof, and clean a chimney. Now, this is child labor, yes. But today, of course, we might assume that it doesn't exist. But like I said, although it may not be in the same shape and form, we're going to be looking at what exactly is going on. So my question to all of you out there who are listening right now, 100 years, have we really moved on? Did we need to move on? And the child labor that we've known over the many past centuries, was it okay? Or is it unacceptable? Should children be focusing on something else like education or playing or growing up and just you know just being kids or should they really be taking part in the work whether it's with their families or otherwise let us know zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight or tweet or or 
post to us on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK. Like I said, it might even be something where you as a child might have experienced something yourself. You might have grown up, like I said, in a family farm for example, and you might have worked there. And we want to know what your thoughts are on that. So let us know about that. Now, coming back to the US. Now, we obviously know that what we've described so far, where a child, rather than studying, rather than playing, is actually out working. And this is basically known as child labor. And while we often associate this problem with poorer countries, like I said, it's actually becoming a problem in this country, the US, the world's largest economy at the moment. Let's see how long. And there is a surge in efforts trying to weaken child labor laws and push children to work in some of the most dangerous industries such as logging. So like I said, it's not as easy as you might think. You, you know, a lot of people might assume, well, yeah, obviously, I mean, children should just go to school. Children should just be growing up. But there is a surge. There, There is a group of people that do feel that Children just should get their hands dirty in the labor work in the labor work from a very young age, and they're actually trying to push an agenda to try and make these laws more lenient so that that can be allowed. And normally, you kind of see these kinds of things in the proper labor jobs. We're not talking about office jobs here. We're not talking about a producer job in a broadcasting house or or a job for retail. We're talking about jobs which require proper physical work. Logging is, has been cited here in this research, which is literally quite a difficult task. And I think a lot of us would also struggle doing that job. So here's the situation right now. Now, what do we think? Of course, we want to hear from you. But of course, this is the Voice of Islam Radio. We're going to look at this from also an ethical, moral and Islamic perspective. And we can see that in Islamic teachings, as far as Islam is concerned, the protection and protection and well-being of children hold great importance. So child labor goes against the principle of justice, compassion, and proper nurturing emphasized in Islamic ethics. And before we go too deep into this, we're going to quickly take a look at what I mean by that. Because, of course, the Quran and the Hadith, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who is the Prophet of Islam, he was the one to whom the message of Islam was revealed to by God Almighty. He has told us quite clearly in many narrations, but I'll give you one. And this is found in the most authentic book of narrations called Sahih al-Bukhari. And what he says is, is that every single person is responsible for their nation. And he's talking about leaders here, so governors. And then he goes on to say, then every single father is responsible for their household and every single mother is responsible for their offspring. So from a financial perspective, Islam already lays out the fundamentals that if someone's working to earn money, then that person shouldn't be the child. That person should be the father. And the mother should be the one to help provide at home as well. So this in no way, this infrastructure, this framework, allows for a child to work to provide for the family. This is really important. However, however, we're going to go into this. The Quran also does say, of course, I'll read the Arabic, which is in English, that slay not your children for fear of poverty. It is we who provide for you and them. And this is talking fundamentally about the fact as well, that while you might think that by you putting your children in a certain environment, might be good for your financial status, it may destroy them in many other ways that we are not quite aware of. For example, if we put a child in the labour field all day, put them in a farm, put them in the the woods, 
what else are they going to be missing out on potentially especially today where we have secular education we have private education we have so many online things social cohesion is it's available to us for children to grow in many shapes and forms how much would they actually end up missing out on this if they were in a field 10 8 12 hours a day of course we want to know what you think but i think a lot of people would know that it would be quite tremendous of an effect so this is first of all of course what the quran and the saying of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him tells us that a child's upbringing first of all has to be looked in a, looked at in a way where it benefits the child the most not in a way that it damages or kills the upbringing of a child that's first and most important and secondly we've already just said that the prophet muhammad peace be upon him has laid down the principle that a child is not ever going to be responsible for bringing money to the table or food to the table that is the responsibility of the parents however and i've been waiting to spin this however for a couple of minutes while child labor is completely wrong islam also does emphasize that children should be given the responsibility of small tasks here and there as they grow up so that they get used to knowing what it means to bear responsibilities little chores little tasks but of course it shouldn't be that they should be bringing money on the table but it should be to train them and this is a completely different kind of perspective not that we're talking about that now we're talking about child labor which is a completely different thing but i guess i imagine some people would kind of fall on this spectrum that where exactly do we fall so let me know as well 0208-687-7878 do you give your child at home chores to do tasks to do and do you think that that would fall under child labor or is that something which we would ascribe as training upbringing what are the difference between the two things? And I think when we have our expert on, we'll ask them as well. So there's, like I said, this is quite a big topic and there's a lot going on. But let's take a look at exactly what's happening in the US. Reportedly, 10 states led by the Republican legislatures have recently spent their legislative sessions relaxing child labor laws, relaxing them. Whilst one of these states is already facing an increase in child labor, some of these states include Missouri, Ohio, Kansas, and Florida, and Iowa. The, weak, the weakening of child labor laws come in the form of allowing companies to hire children without work permits and making it legal for them to work long hours in more dangerous conditions. This is a report published by The Independent. And honestly, I just you read it, but you still find that somewhat challenging to believe. What on earth would drive people to want to put children into more difficult and dangerous work conditions. I mean, we're not even talking at the moment about your average teenager in a coffee shop selling, you know, coffee behind the bar, a barista, for example, or like I said, someone who's in the retail. Even that would be a debate. But putting that to the side, we're talking about things like, like I said, bricklaying, logging. Well, back in the Victorian times, we had chimney sweeping. These are pretty arduous tasks and they come with a huge risk. Mining as well. Not only risks of, well, let's just be frank, death, because you can fall, you can be crushed, you can be hurt. It's quite a heavy work task. But the breathing environments and the strenuous workloads that take place on your body would certainly affect the growth, physical growth we're talking about here, of a child. Because, of course, studies also show to us that while an adult, for example, should be sleeping, let's say, six to eight hours a day, a child should be sleeping even more than that in a single day. 
And this is prevalent because we know that children need more recovery, they need more rest, and they need more time for growth. And the more you take that away from a child in the long term, it will be definitely detrimental to them. But anyway, this is exactly what's being pushed here at the moment. And of course, like I said, this is an Islamic channel. And while Islam stresses great importance on taking care of children and bringing them up with the best of morals, the verse that we mentioned earlier, that do not kill your children, refers to both born and unborn children. In this verse, Allah protects the child's right to life. And so if we broadly take this, it also guides us to protect them from any sort of harm and enjoins the parents to place their trust in Allah. Islam teaches that children are a blessing and their proper rearing is a means of gaining Allah's pleasure. Now, this is, like I said, the fundamentals. The, theor- the theory, let's say, the theoretical scripture of what Islam tells us to do. But is this, is this actually what Muslims do? Or is this is actually what the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did? We have to take a look. Did he, for example, let kids go to work? I mean, one thing that springs to my mind straight away, one of the greatest things that used to happen at that time, of course we already know, is that at that time, Muslims were being attacked and oppressed by the Meccans, the Quraysh, even the Banu Quraysa and the Banu Kenka tribes of the Jews. And there were a lot of battles that took place. And it would often so happen <laughs> that very eager children who really wanted to just, you know, put their faith, wear it on their sleeve and try and defend their identity, they would creep into the armies and they would sneak into the military ranks, whether it was to fight, whether it was to help in medicine, whether it was to help in giving water, whatever the case was, they would just try and sneak in to the ranks. So they wanted to take part, they wanted to be a part of it. And the, the thing is that when the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, would find such people who were in the ranks and they were children, he would tell them that this is not, this is not the way. Of course, there were still children who would still squeeze through. And we know some very courageous examples. But it wasn't something that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, advocated for or said, you have to come and do it. So we can see that he would actually pull them away. But what instead did the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, want from children? What did he actually want? We know from the Quran, for example, that one of the greatest things that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, did was abolish slavery over time. And one of the ways that he did this is that when he someone would commit a crime or commit a sin, he would say to them that you should abolish a slave and also at the same time you should teach children how to read and write. 10 children, 15 children, this is your punishment. (laughs) Can you imagine that? In a society where rather than serving time, the punishment was to teach people how to read and write. This is absolutely amazing. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, really at the front of his mind always was that he wanted education, for children to be at the forefront instead of them going out, fighting, working, because he knew that the mental development, psychological development is really, really important for a child. The Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has actually said that a child is born with a pure nature, what we call in Arabic, fitratul sahiha. And what that means is, is that a child is born completely innocent with a, no agenda, no bias at all. And it is... The society then around him, the Prophet continues to say that it is then the parents and the society that then turn him into a Christian or a pagan or a Jew or so forth and so so on. So what we know from this 
is that we have to be really, really careful about the way we raise our children. What kind of environments we expose them to, where we send our children will deeply have an impact on who they become when they grow up. So therefore, while we might think that sending a child to work is just them going to work, just them going to earn some money, for example, we also need to keep in mind who are they working with? Are the people that are around them, are they age appropriate, for example, just for a start? Are they going to be even talking about things which children should be overhearing or hearing directly, for example? These are all serious things that we need to consider as part of this debate. Otherwise, if we do not, like I said, we would be overlooking and ignoring factors about children's upbringing that will later, much later, become prevalent. I mean, I, if I'm just as a father, if I'm speaking, I would immediately start thinking of a million things to, to send my child to work it's not very uncommonplace nowadays to be extremely concerned about your child's safety in a plethora of ways. There's lots of harassment, abuse cases happening, even you know all over the world. But beyond that, even if I just talk about you know basic things, I would, as a father, be concerned. Is my child simply going to learn a bad word, an inappropriate slur? Is my child going to end up being exposed to people who are addicted to drugs, for example. This would be my genuine concern as a parent. Because, of course, for an adult, this might be a completely different situation. But for a child who might struggle to differentiate between right and wrong at such a young age, who might struggle to see the wrong, the harms from the safes at such a young age, it would seriously be a big, big concern. So, of course, these are the points that we need to keep in mind when we are looking at this topic. But now we've got to come back to this because even the federal bill reintroduced in March 2023 aims to allow teenagers to work in certain merchandise operate oh mechanized operations in the most dangerous and hazardous industries like logging. These rollbacks at the federal and state levels are being proposed even as child labor violations have soared in recent years. I mean let's just take a look at this right now. The statistics are telling us that violations have increased, which should tell us that technically we should be more concerned about child labour and the way it's being dealt with. On the other hand, we have bills being pushed and passed, which are making these laws even more lenient. What do you think about this? 0208687 And of course, we know that these rollbacks at the federal and state levels are being proposed even as child labour violations have soared in recent years. And despite the fact that the logging industry is consistently leading with having the highest workplace fatality rate in the nation, we are still trying to push for this. Like I said in the beginning, there is a, a wide range of things that can happen. Psychologically, a child can be affected. The society in which a child is brought up, they can learn different habits which may negatively impact them. But of course, the most obvious thing that you would think of when you send a child to a place such as logging is, I'm sending my child to work this morning. Are they even going to come back? Is this morning going to be the last morning where I am going to say goodbye or assalamu alaikum or see you in the evening, dear? Or am I going to actually see them again? I mean, why would any parent want to put their child through this and put themselves through this as well? Unless, like I said, they are doing it solely because they want to put money on the table, whereby we've already established from an Islamic perspective that this is not a responsibility of a child to bring food to the table. Islam accepts the fact that 
that God chooses by will to give children to people. And men and women, of course, are partaking in that decision when they come together. So if men and women want to have children, they should do it with the conscious that when they have children, they are accountable to God knowing that they have to provide for their children. They cannot force their children to provide for them. So this is the Islamic fundamental principle. And I'm sure this is probably something which is echoed by a lot of people around the world. We will find out quite soon about this. Now, there is a study that has been conducted by Advisor Smith, which found that the fatal injury rate in the logging industry to be 70 per 100,000 workers. 21 times the average job nationwide. 21 times. And this is not the job that we're talking about generally. This is the job that we're talking about where child labour is trying to be made more lenient, more enforced, 21 times more fatality rate we're talking about here. And now, of course, there are going to be a lot of critics who will argue against this. And they include the families of those people who have been affected. And they've shown a lot of disgust around this surrounding child labour. And of course, it would be quite understandable if you have someone whose family belongs to a family where they've had a, a child, maybe distant to them, who they've lost. Of course, they would see this as something, somewhat of an outrage. Maybe they, they made the choice and maybe they've seen really this was not the right idea. But let's take up one case, look at one case, for example. We see Wendy Bostwick's son, Cole, who had just turned 18, died in a logging accident in 2014 on a job site in Washington, where his father was also working. Referring about children, she says they don't have the mental faculties to drink alcohol, but they can go out there and make life and death decisions. I don't think so. It's dumb and dangerous. This is what she says. Right, I mean, this is, like we were saying before, she is quite rightly here said that a child doesn't have the decisions, the faculties to legally make the decision to drink alcohol. But they're being sent to a place where not only are they being put in dire circumstances where they could get genuinely hurt, but they're going to be quite likely exposed to people who are also dealing with such things. It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be many other forms of negative things that influence a child. And a child, if legally, is not yet capable to decide whether they want to partake in those things. Should they be exposed to such an environment for many, many hours a day? Or should they be in the safety of an environment like a college or a school or their parents? This is the debate that we're having right now. 0208-687-7878 is the number to call. And I guess you're all wondering, we've been banging on about it, assuming that it's all of this is happening because people just want money. They want to send their children to work so they can buy something nice. Is this really what's happening? Let's find out. According to an article published in The Independent, the onset of COVID-19 pandemic totally disturbed the labour market, causing service sector contractions and leaving employers without staff when the lockdown relaxed. The Department of Labour District Director Will Daly De Jesus explains that from the fiscal years of 2022 up to 20 sorry from the years of 2020 to 2022 we have seen more child labor than we have seen from 2011 to 2020 currently central florida is seeking a spike in child labor's cases dating back to the start of covid-19 reportedly children have been working too many long hours during school days to operating dangerous and heavy machinery so what the case is being tried to be built here is that covid-19 is basically to blame People can't go to work 
let's just let's just kind of look at this a bit more practically. People can't go to work because a, there is a risk of them either spreading or contracting COVID nineteen, or they have COVID nineteen and they're too ill to try and do you know give it up you know give, do their jobs. Oh, I know this great. Let's have a, I have a good idea. Let's put the people that are adults. Let's take them out of harm's way of COVID nineteen and let's put kids in their place instead. Absolutely smashing plan. Um, I mean, I mean, this statistic does build an image in a way where it almost seems justifiable, but it doesn't to me, because what it's telling me is that where an adult wasn't sufficient to take place a role and a job, we have felt the need that children were sufficient and 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 you know quite adequate, which is quite uh, quite frankly absurd, of course, and as I'm, as I'm sure most of you would agree, and of course let's find out really what are their exact reasonings behind this COVID-19 blame game. Let's see. The irony is that the effort to weaken the child labor laws was actually led by a Florida-based think tank, the Foundation for Government Accountability. This think tank has created a blueprint for legislation that states can adopt in order to reduce the safeguards in place for child labor. Now, the director of the Economic Analysis and Research Network told the television station WFTV that we're seeing a trend of much younger children because sometimes the children don't know what they're supposed to do or not supposed to do. A lot of times, parents don't know either. They may assume that it's safe or that the child is working the correct hours and that there's no limitations, but there are. The exploitation of children is happening due to this lack of awareness. And if parents are made aware of the negative impacts that child labour is having on their child, they would allow their children to work now here we are i mean this doesn't really seem like it has any foundation in covid19 at all what it seems like to me from the reports that we've just read tells us that parents aren't really sure what they should be doing with their kids so therefore what what should we do i don't know send them out in the field sounds pretty traditional sounds pretty conventional go for it and they're not even sure like the report suggests how long they should be doing it is it safe and they're just kind of going on a whim about it. Where we've already kind of spoken about this fact that if something is not adequate and safe for a, an adult, let's say in the pandemic, why on earth would we consider attending our children there? This is something which I personally would say is a parenting A and B fail. I mean, it, it must be. But let's see what Islam says, of course, about this. And that is the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, says that he was so mindful and compassionate towards the feeling of others especially children and their parents. It was reported that when the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, intended to pray longer in congregation but heard a child crying, he would cut the prayer short because he was mindful of the pain the child's crying might be causing to the mother. We're not even talking about work right now. We're talking about a child's sentiments and emotions because someone's praying. This is how careful the Prophet Muhammad was with the psychology and upbringing of a child and we're talking about, on the other hand, here, the US states trying to send a kid to cut down some trees, not knowing if they'll come back on the same day. We're going to obviously be talking about this further. We do have a guest with us on the line, and I am very familiar with him. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace be upon you, Mr. Salam Bhatti. How are you doing? Um, well, welcome, Salam Imam Kamar Sahib. I'm well. How are you? Alhamdulillah, good. You are in the country or in the state, I presume where we are having a go at right now. <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently, there's a lot of, uh, of a, there's quite a lot of a push in the US for child labor laws to be relaxed. 
Uh, we want to find out from you kind of what's going on. I mean, how have industry groups been actively involved in attempts to diminish child labour laws? And what specific methods or strategies have they employed to try and get the job done? Yeah, so, you know, this is politics come largely into play. Um, you know, people may know that there's Republicans and Democrats. Republicans will hold themselves out to be the party of limited government, so they want less restrictions. Uh, and so over the past two years, we've actually seen about 10 states with Republican majorities roll back child labor wow. regulations. Now, there's a couple more states that have Democratic majorities, but the Republicans within have introduced similar bills. Okay. So what industry groups are doing, like groups like hotels, restaurants, big factories, okay. they're appealing to the Republicans that these child labor laws are, are unnecessary burdens and let's take them back. So. That's what they've successfully been able to do. I mean, I, I still, I mean, we've been talking about this for half an hour. I'm still kind of struggling to believe all of this. It kind of sounds quite crazy to me personally as a father of, you know, very young children. But why, Salam, do industry groups possess the ability to sway state legislators into revising child labour laws? I mean, shouldn't it be something which would be extremely difficult to do in the first place? So I'm going to say a word, and that word is lobby. And okay. I'm not talking about hotel lobbies. Okay. <laughs> it's, uh, in, in America, so like industry groups can do this because America has a lot of ways for these groups to lobby politicians. Now, while this may not be outright called a bribe that we see in other parts of the world, it can very well be just that. You know, corporations routinely donate to politicians' campaigns so that the politician can stay in office and pol uh, corporations can keep their power and their money. So that's how the, oh, wow. the world works over here. Yeah. yeah. Okay, because what I was thinking is when I was reading a report out earlier, it did say, or suggest rather, that parents basically were sending some of their kids to work because they quite frankly didn't know what to do with them. They were probably annoying them at home and they were like, what do we do with these kids? Just send them away. And I'm thinking, well, okay, that sounds like a bit of unconscious parenting happening right there. So therefore, that led me to the question to wonder that are there actually any legal mechanisms or safeguards in place to ensure that the genuine interests of children are adequately protected and that we actually take a look at is this right for them and is this actually safe when groups seeks when industry groups seek changes to child labor regulations is there someone who's actually going to take a look at this and be like mm -mm, is this the right thing to do yeah so in america there's two types of laws there's the federal law which is you know govern the congress passes federal laws and that's the limit for the whole country and then okay. states can pass their own laws as well Okay. So there are federal laws that the state must follow. And in this case, it's called the Fair Labor Standards Act, or FLSA. And what this act does, it sets the floor on wages, hours, and child labor standards. So what states can do is they can provide more protection beyond the FLSA, but they cannot provide less. So if a state law is providing less protection, okay. then the federal law will trump that law. So if um, if a federal law applies to the employer and there's like a, a minimum wage set for the kids and the state right. try to make it less, the state cannot do that. Uh, the federal law will apply there. Okay. So I'm, 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 this is a really naive question. I'm, I'm kind of going to ask, what kind of age are we talking about? I know it probably might fluctuate across different areas, but... What, are, what kind of ages do we see of, of, of children going out to work? Do you have any kind of rough idea? Yeah, so, so due to the rollbacks, it's 
it's gotten to be a tendency between like the ages of 14 and 16. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. But, okay, I see. That's pretty young. Okay. So do, do you think then in that case that, you know, departments and agencies such as the Department of Labor, for example, are doing enough and is it okay? So it's it's not doing enough, but it, it, I mean, it's doing, it's done some good work, but it can do better. Okay. And what the Department of Labor should do is really, uh, it, it's hit them in the pocket, increase the fine okay. to an amount that will make the industry think twice right. about violating the law. So it's like right now, if you find a billionaire $150 for parking in a no parking yeah. zone, he doesn't care. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's pocket money for him. Right. And so the same thing applies here. You know, these multi-million, multi-billion dollar companies should face much different fines. We're trying to squeeze out work from our kids just to make more money. Okay. Now, Congress, on the other hand, Congress can step in and protect migrant children and protect those who are in the agricultural working field. I and see. states can step in and they can begin to eliminate something known as a sub-minimum wage. Now, a lot of people know about the minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour. So, yeah, the minimum wage is that employers cannot pay less than $7.25 per hour. Unfortunately, it's been $7.25 for decades. It has not been adjusted for inflation. You cannot make a living. It's not a living wage. So there's also something called sub-minimum wage, where kids and uh, uh, restaurant workers they'll get paid like $4.25 an wow. hour. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. And, so I mean, states can actually wow. work to eliminate, and okay. they should. This is something that can be done. And I mean, forgive my really naive questions, but so far we, we're trying to understand really, why would ch- children be sent, let's just put the laws to, to the side for a minute, whether it's allowed or not. Why would parents want to let their children go and work? In uh, let's say we've been looking, talking about things like logging, where there's a high fatality rate. Why would parents want to send their children to some place like that? I, I can't quite understand that. It, it's uh, it's something that many of us probably will never understand unless we're put in the position of perhaps the desperation they're in. Okay. Perhaps they're living in some extreme poverty. Right. Okay. Uh, in America, we've seen a lot of these, you know, agricultural farm workers, these factory workers, hotel workers, who are not just immigrants, but children of immigrants as well. Okay. Uh, and so that is a major cause for concern. So, you know, these immigrants, hmm. perhaps refugees, asylees, okay. who have so, fled their country so kind of, for a better mm-hmm. world. Yeah. They so what you're kind of trying here. to say here is that the issue runs much deeper. <laughs> uh, than, oh, than what we see it, it, it kind of yeah. definitely runs deep and I think we will talk about this more in a bit then thanks for raising that as well but from an Islamic perspective I think we, we need to kind of understand this because what we what we kind of understood so far is that of course child labour isn't something that's advocated from an Islamic perspective the responsibility of financially providing is, is not on a child but what, what do we take from that um, why is the increase in child labour in the US a matter of concern from the Islamic ethical standpoint? And how can Islamic teachings practically, ethically guide us in addressing this challenge, but also at the same time uphold the justice and understand really that some families might actually be going through, for example, a tough time? Yeah, so in a word, zakat. Okay. Now, let me tell you why. So all the studies show that when younger people are working with these weakened standards, Mm-hmm. They're not only harmful to their physical health and development, yeah. but they also end up dropping out of school 
right. which in turn leads them to a life of low wages and poverty, even the inability to critically think. Now, the bottom line here, Gomer, is that when corporations are pursuing their own bottom line, it's no longer a reference to a final total of amount, but it's a reference to how low they can go to steal more profit. Okay. And it doesn't get much lower than sacrificing kids' futures for money. Right, so the absolutely. question is, why are these kids being forced to work? And is it largely due to their families being in poverty? Hmm. So rather than having more labor laws and this and that, let's eliminate poverty. Good. And the most yeah. surefire way to do that is to implement as a thought system a tax on unused wealth and distribute that to those who are low income. Got you. Okay. So this certainly, like you've just explained, is, is a much deeper issue. And while it may be the case that we might find pockets of people that might just be doing it out of an ill-informed, unconscious situation. There are definitely going to be people who are feeling a very, very serious pinch and they are living in poverty and they might literally what we ascribe in Islam as someone who is left without no option. And we also need to now look into that, I guess, as well. But thank you very much, Salam, for coming on and opening this side of the conversation so that we can kind of explore this further. And I hope that I'll have, be able to have a chat with you again sometime soon. And until then, yeah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you. Thank you very much for coming on. I just want to say we spell our labor without a U. You can leave now. <laughs> <laughs> that was Salam trying to push his US spelling agenda on the Voice of Islam UK radio. That's not going to roll. That's not going to roll. But of course, that's just a joke. Salam, thank you very much for coming on. Um, he's picked on some really, really important points here. And we've kind of, through this whole show, spoke about how child labor is wrong. And of course, we know that. I mean, in fact, the Quran prescribes a lot of things that are wrong. Killing, lying, cheating, stealing, adultery, so many different things. That even most of you know that Muslims don't eat pork, for example. We can't eat pork. Swine, pigs, we can't eat that. But, and the Quran says, That, as for that person who is left with absolutely no choice, he's coerced into a situation where they're like, what on earth do we do now? Right? So let's, for instance, take the example of swine, as I just mentioned. And they're dying and they're starving. And uh, they find nothing in, the, in around them. No vegetation, no, no cows, nothing else. They find a pig. Can they eat that pig? Can that Muslim eat that pig? Yes, they can, because they have to survive. Killing yourself is a bigger sin than survival on something which is impermissible. And that's what Islam fundamentally says. So if we generally are seeing cases where Salam said it could be immigrants, it could be other such cases of extreme poverty, and poverty in itself is an entirely separate topic, which is, like I said, the deeper, deeper issue as it seems at hand. Do we have and find families in situations where they are so desolate and desperate that their children are working so that they can just make ends meet. And of course, Islam does not propagate for such a framework. Islam does not want a child to go out in the, in the field and do these kinds of things. But what are you going to do if you have absolutely no choice? And this is, I think, what Salam was coming to. That this problem needs to be dealt with from the very core. They should be in a position where they have a choice. And that's where our agencies and governments need to put in legislation where no matter what happens, no matter how poor you become, you should be able to feed your family so that your children don't have to go out and work 
in the fields. It is something that fundamentally every single country, every single state, every single village should be able to resolve. And if it's not resolved, then if someone is coerced and is put into a difficult situation, then God is their helper. And of course, we still don't advocate that kind of situation. So this is kind of the sad state of affairs that we've kind of just looking at and we're trying to you know, see what can we do about this. And we can go back to the time of the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Salam mentioned zakat, for example, which is a financial infrastructure. We did a show on this, I think, last month, how it can completely eradicate poverty if looked at very wisely. There are many ways that we can do it. But even if we look at zakat, this is something that we have to implement on a wider scale, something that, you know, would need a lot of attention and the world to come to to actually implement it. Capitalism, to a large part, would you need to get rid of it. But what can we do at home? Can we do something that we can start maybe one step at a time? Is there something that we can do just right now with our kids? We have to look back, like I said, at the Holy Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, his companions, and see were there times where they were able to show us how to eliminate problems or people who are so desolate, so starving, that they have no choice but to retreat to improper ways of raising money for their household. That could be child labor, that could be committing any kind of crime, it could be anything. If they're genuinely coerced, what can we do to help that person? And here we have the stories of the companions. Who, for example, we have Hazrat Uthman radiallahu an, who was not only the third caliph of Islam, he was also a tradesman and a very successful one at that as well. So when he would return from Syria with large loots of, you know, full of caravan, caravans, full of different kinds of incense and foods and herbs and clothings and jewelry, he'd come back and, of course, sell that to the Medinites, the Meccans and the surrounding areas as well. But when he would return to these same areas and the population of these people would be suffering from either a drought or a famine or extreme poverty, what would Hazrat Usman do? Would he still sell his things at the same higher price? Or do you think he would reduce the price? I mean, just take a moment to think about what do you think he would do? Being a Muslim, being consciously aware of the fact that he owes some kind of duty to his fellow brethren, would he keep and maintain the same prices of his goods for the people? Or would he reduce the things for them? Would he take 20% off? Maybe a half price sale? I mean, a lot of you would assume that he probably would. But you'd be wrong. He didn't do that. He didn't keep... But the thing is, he didn't do that. He didn't keep the same price. He didn't decrease the price either. What he did is he removed the price altogether. And he gave those things out free of cost. This was his outlook on his business. It's something that he thrives on. This is something that he does as a living. What has he chosen to do? He put the needs of these people before himself. And the Quran quite beautifully explains this. That those people put others before themselves even if they are feeling hungry. And I think that this is the most beautiful principle if Hazrat Usman was a caliph, so he was a leader, a governor, later on, and in the beginning he was a prominent companion. And just like today, we also have leaders, governors, and prominent people. If they too could adopt this strategy, 
where with their wealth and with their responsibility, any time of difficulty comes, if they consciously would step up to help people in the way that Hazrat Usman did, we wouldn't be seeing the situation that we see today. But there's a huge problem with trying to implement a framework like this. Because what this framework demands is for a, a person <laughs> to be nice, to be good, just for the sake of it. You're not going to get anything for it. You're not going to get any kind of financial return or you shouldn't be expecting it. Who in their right mind in today's capitalist state would do that? That is the problem with this framework. They wouldn't do it. They might do it to save tax. Yeah, give charity. Let's give a million pounds so we, we can write off our taxes. But who would do it in times of destitution where they have goods which they can make a good profit out of, but they give it out for free instead completely? All of their stock, every single last bit of it. I don't know. I'd be stretched to find someone like that. And the reason why this framework worked in the time of Hazrat Usman, in the time of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, in the time of Hazrat Umar and Hazrat Ali, the caliphs of Islam, is because they had a belief in God. They were consciously aware that even if they do not get a single penny in return, their reward is with God. And even if they don't get a reward from God for it, we can look to the example of Hazrat Umar, who wasn't even concerned about whether he would get a penny in return. He wasn't concerned about whether he would be rewarded by God. What he was concerned about is that, for example, if I failed to feed a civilian in my town who is a woman and she has two children and they have nothing to eat at night and I don't do it, then God, by God, my God will grab me by the neck and I will be accountable for this. I will get in trouble for this. They were more concerned about being reprimanded. This was the level of their responsibility than them wanting to search for reward. Like I said, in a capitalist state, you'll be stretched to find uh, this kind of enthusiasm towards helping people in, in, in a dire state because at the end of the day, who's going to ask them when they die? They'll probably still be asked. They just don't know it yet. So this is why, from a Muslim Islamic standpoint, the framework which stands upon belief in God will work so much better than one that doesn't because you have people who will always aim to strive to tackle these problems from their root issues. We're talking about child labour today and of course we've spoken about how it isn't a nice thing. But we've also spoken about the fact that if we want to really eliminate it, we have to fix the core issues at hand. So this is kind of what we've kind of discussed so far. We have people, like I said, who try to ease the legislation. We have people who are completely against it. We want to know, of course, what you think. 0208 687 7878 or tweet to us at Voice of Islam UK or shout us out or tag us in on a story on Instagram at Voice of Islam UK as well. What do you think? Have you had a experience of your own where perhaps you did a, a job when you were younger or you saw your parents doing something which you remember or perhaps you know someone and you want to share your views about that it could be that you feel very strongly against it it could be that you saw someone who was in an unnegotiable situation and they had to do what they had to do let us know but what we know from the reports that we've read so far is that there are still a lot of people and a lot of parents that are quite simply sending their kids to work because they don't know what to do with their kids. And that's 
not really poverty. And this is where I can't really get my head around it. Because a child should first and foremost be focusing on their education, their upbringing, their social education as well. And like Salam said, a lot of these kids will end up missing school time. In return for what? A bit of money? A bit of damage to their health? This is something which, you know, we've almost been an hour into this. I don't think that I would understand exactly why somebody voluntarily would do that to their child. And like we said in the beginning, it is the responsibility of the parents to actually take into account that they are financially responsible for providing for their family. And of course, we are talking about education here as well, because it does impact education. And as we were talking about earlier, Florida, seeing spike in child labor cases, the data is not clear on several points, including how many of the children in question are undocumented immigrants. This is alarming, as these children are at a greater risk of exploitation. And of course they are, because why wouldn't they be? They don't, they don't really know anything about the country. They probably don't even know the language that well. They're probably first and foremost concerned about the fact that they may have come from a war-torn country, a desolate country, and they don't want to end up in the same way here. Their trauma is putting them into a survival mode. And they'll probably do whatever it takes, probably take the first opportunities that come their way that they can to ensure that their children don't have to sleep on the hard ground. Someone wants to exploit someone, these are the people to do it. But of course, we need to do everything we can to stop that from happening. So, of course, this is something which is extremely alarming. In fact, the number of, of unaccompanied minors coming to the US last year was three times what it was five years earlier. So we're talking about 130,000 minors. This is a report from the New York Times. These are not the children that have been brought to the US undetected. The US government knows they are in the USA and it is the duty of the Department of Health and Human Services to ensure sponsors will support them and protect them from trafficking or exploitation. However, according to the New York Times, due to the increasing number, it is supposed to check on the minors of every month, the HHS has been unable to contact more than 85,000 children over the past two years and have lost immediate contact with a third of migrant children. A third of migrant children, we have no idea what they are doing. Like we've just said, they could be logging. They could be working a machine. And do you know what? Even though that's a terrible thing to imagine, I hope that that's the worst of what they're doing. Because we all quite frankly know that there are many more things that could be happening when it comes to child exploitation. And that is why this situation is extremely, extremely alarming. Child labour doesn't just stop at the legal line. It goes way beyond that as well. So if we are missing 85,000 children that we are not aware what they are doing, that tells us enough of a story that Child labour laws should not be the first thing on our minds to make more lenient. Now, it has also been reported in a Guardian article that Jennifer Shearer, a senior state policy coordinator for the Economic Analysis and Research Network, has said that if these bills are not stopped, the long-term consequences for many children will be severe. 
There's really extensive research, she says, in the public health and education world on why we have developed, over time, restrictions on work hours. Like I said, 100 years ago, you would have seen a chimney sweep a three-year-old. We don't have that anymore. And there's a reason behind that. Teens and high school students that get close to or exceed that 20-hour-a-week mark for paid labour during the school year end up in a higher-risk category and are less likely to compete, complete high school and less likely to be in a position to pursue post-secondary education or training. And that puts young people on a path to fewer job opportunities and lower earnings for a lifetime. So what we're trying to say here is that I mean, I kind of remember a story. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it. There was a story of a, a horse and a donkey. One of them, they were both traveling and they, 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 there was a fork in the road and they had to decide where they wanted to go. One saw a path which was really narrow and really kind of tight, but it was really short. So he thought, you know, it's an easy one. Let me get through it. And then the donkey was like seeing a path that was really, really long, but it was quite nice, cruisy and, and breezy. So he chose to take that one. And what ended up happening is that the horse got stuck in the very short road and wasn't able to get out. And the donkey, even though it took a lot longer, much longer, was able to get out and go on his way. And the moral of that story was supposed to be, I'm saying supposed to be because obviously we haven't taken the moral (laughs) from the story, is that we should never opt for the most immediate and obvious and easy action if we can so help it. Sending our kids to immediately to go to work right now instead of getting an education, properly preparing themselves, and then finding a good job with a good wage, is not a good thing to do. We want to be the donkey. Well, not a donkey, the donkey, and not be the horse. And unfortunately, I feel like a lot of parents are not realizing this, if they are doing this voluntarily. So what have we learned today from this topic of child labor? The issue of child labor is one that touches upon the very essence of our moral and ethical responsibilities towards the younger generation. And as we've discussed, child labour not only contradicts the principles of justice, compassion, balanced development, but it also undermines the future potential of our societies. Because if our children aren't in school, if they're not growing up, then we're never going to have adults that properly grew up in the first place for our future. The government also has responsibility towards its state, especially towards vulnerable members of society. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, has said, and I said this right in the beginning, I'll say the Arabic, that take care, each of you is a shepherd, and each of you shall be asked concerning their flock. A leader is a shepherd of his people, and she, he shall be asked concerning his flock. A father is a shepherd, cons- uh, is, is accountable concerning their, their family, and they will be asked concerning their family, and a mother is accountable for the household and will be uh, asked concerning that too. Nowhere in this is a child accountable for anything. Let's just keep that in mind. It doesn't mention it at all. And the fact that we have, whether it's voluntarily or involuntarily, are putting our children into situations where they are having to do this, jobs or otherwise, is quite a dire situation which I'm sure that the Holy Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him would have been very saddened to see because this is not the Islamic framework, of course. And we would end off, we are coming to the end now, and I hope you guys have been journeying on with us, building your own views on this as well. Islam, the core teachings of Islam, are always going to be based on the principles of justice 
and equity. Equity meaning that everybody should be given and everything and, 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 and of everyone should be required what they need. Not everyone should have to do exactly the same thing because not everybody is physically or psychologically at the same level. We'll leave it at that. We're going to take a break now and we're going to be coming back after the news for our next segment where we'll be talking again and we're bringing your views on as well. We'll take you there after the short break, which is right now for the news. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you all. We're back for the drive time show. We've just been talking about child labor and the various issues surrounding that. And we are now going to be coming back for a topic which ironically should be moving on from that. And that is compassion in a time of crisis. And we have with us Dr. Tarek. Assalamu alaikum, Dr. Sir. Well, you know peace be on you. Thank Dr. Tarek. I'm glad you're here <laughs> because you. I was boiling in this room. And I was wondering for the past hour, why is it so hot in this room? Like, there's vents everywhere. And then Dr. Tarek very nicely came in and said, come here, the AC's off. <laughs> so we're glad that that's kind of going to hopefully resolve itself. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you what happened to me, why I was oh, late. Oh, yes. And, and I think you were talking about child labor earlier. Yes, I was. <laughs> and uh, I was wondering because I just came back from Germany after our annual conference. Oh, there, right, 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 right. Um, uh, day before yesterday. And, uh, you know, everything everything was fine. We, we came back on the airport. And at the airport, we were waiting for our um, baggage to come. And, uh, you know... It took some time. It took one hour. And one then hour. <laughs> there was no information, nothing, and the baggage was not coming. And, okay. you know, nobody's baggage, not only mine, oh, right. but even our, uh, you know, Amir Sahib of UK, he was with me as well. Oh, okay. So he was waiting there for one hour. After one hour, we went to the counter and they said, oh, we don't have enough people to take the luggage from the uh, oh, right. airplane to, really? to the belt. Wow. And so the the flight before us was waiting oh. and uh, so you have to wait first they will be their luggage will come and then yours one and then i said oh if you want you can go home and you can come back and pick really? it up yeah and uh, so amir sahib uh, stayed there and he was lucky he after half an hour he, he rang me and said that oh I, we have received the luggage oh. so it was after about nearly two hours you know and uh, so then my my son-in-law, he, he went back, he drove back and uh, just to get the luggage. Yeah. And he had to wait another hour just to get in to, to get the luggage. So it is a shortage of the uh, of the of the people right. uh, who are not there and particularly our country uk is suffering from that there right. is a shortage of people who used to work there uh, particularly european people and they were the ones who were you know doing this kind of a job yeah. and because of they were short of that they are getting into you know yeah. lose their rules and they are bringing up the students okay. and some of them maybe children as well and allowing oh, them wow. to to work so so this is one of the, the, the reason why. So, so you were talking about child labor, and I, I mean, thought that I, I should mention that. And today I've, I've been delayed by the train because without any notice, they, they, they didn't 
stop. And they said they they, they went directly to, um, <laughs> you know, um, to another station. And I had to come all the way back. And on the way back, they also didn't stop. Oh, wow. And they didn't mention it beforehand. <laughs> so this is this is the way the situation is. This and is that's story. why. You've been delayed by a plane. You've been delayed by, <laughs> uh, by a train. <laughs> and now the only thing that's left is a taxi. So <laughs> the next person who's going to mm-hmm. go with Dr. Talek on a taxi, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, of course, like I said, we spoke about the US. I didn't know that this was a situation that we also now beginning to see yeah, in the it's, UK. It's very strange. I, I mean, mean, I wonder where all the people went. I mean, that, I'm saying that ironically because yeah. I know we know where they went. We know where they and went. Exactly yeah, why they went. But that's a whole completely different topic. And but this is like I said, it needs to be dealt from yeah, the root. Yeah, but but the irony is that all the time, you know, as we have been listening, that we were blaming China, we were blaming <laughs> India, we were blaming yeah. Pakistan, we were blaming Bangladesh that there is a child labor there and yeah, people are yeah. working. It is because of their situation, their economic condition, that's their true. financial. Yeah. They can't afford it, and and that's why I have I've seen personally, I've seen um, children eating from the garbage. Practically, really? I've seen it in India, wow. and uh, so when such is the situation, yeah. you know, the, yeah. this child is not going to go to of school. Course. If if this child is helping parents somewhere, wow. you know, we were always talking about them. But look at now what's happening. The USA, which is you know the most developed country so far, it is considered years old, to be at fourteen least. years old. Yeah, and and uh, you see, this is what is happening there. I mean, that's that's kind of interesting that you mentioned that, right? Yeah. Because when when I'm flicking through social media, right? Yeah. And I and I and I see. I don't, I'm not going to mention companies and stuff because I don't want to annoy people. Yeah, absolutely. But you you have brands that are selling products, clothing, jewelry, and you know, they're, they're kind of trying to promote their product. And then randomly in the comments somewhere, I'll see someone like, no, don't buy their stuff. This was produced by a child in India. And I'm like, well, that's actually a good point, man. Children buy their stuff. And you just made me realize that the same kind of hypocrisy of child labor that we're talking about there. Yeah. And they, like you said, they might even have a reason for that, yeah. which we're not justifying. But it may be the case that they're destitute. Here, we have the same issue now being prevalent. Absolutely. But we're going to be very happy to fly yeah. with these people and do everything without blatting an eyelid. So, so you see, <laughs> you, you are flexible. You, you lose the strings when you require yeah. it, when you need it. Wow. So, so this is what Islam teaches us, the basic principles to adhere to. And compassion is one of them. And that is what we are going to discuss in the next mm. hour. And compassion is associated with that because you have to be compassionate um, not only with children, but everyone. Hmm. And uh, it is because of the compassion that you see people suffering around the world and you have to look for a solution to how can we bring peace to the world. Hmm. People, many of them, they are, as you mentioned earlier in your program, I was listening to that, that you mentioned that from the war-torn countries, these people, these children are migrating without parents even. And and it's not that uh, the authorities do not know about that. They are aware of that, that is happening, but they intentionally give them ways so that they can they can come in and they can help them out as well. So uh, so we have to look uh, for uh, you know helping people as much as we can worldwide, hmm. because God Almighty says that I have made provision for everyone who is on this earth. It is the people who have uh, distributed it in such a manner that it has come to a few hands Mm. rather than being distributed equally. And we are not willing to give it away to the people for whom God Almighty has given us those resources Mm. so that we can provide it to them. Mm. And and that is what brings in um, a lot of economic crisis, which leads later on to the wars. 
Yeah. I mean, I'm just trying to think of this from a very ground root level. Obviously, we're talking about compassion in a time of crisis. And by crisis, obviously, we're not just talking about war or we're not talking about proxy wars even. We're talking about even here at home where we have financial crises going on. People are in times of difficulty no matter where you look. So what I'm trying to understand is, is that what do we mean by this? Because what I understand from this yeah. is that seemingly we live in a very, let's say, pragmatic, multicultural society. But if you walk down the street, do you really get this sense of belonging? And do you really feel like the person that you've just crossed is your brother? And then the person that is just about to cross you is really your sister? Do we get that feeling here in London? I mean, if I'm genuinely honest, I don't feel like I even know I want to say I, anything I, to them. I think the, the things are gradually deteriorating. Okay. They were much better. I, I, I remember myself that there, there were people, you know, they used to be, uh, you know, when something, they saw that somebody's in trouble, they would stop there, they would mm. try to yeah. help. Yeah. But that trend has changed now. You're not even... Pe- people like... don't bother. People say, oh, I don't want to get into trouble. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and, and they, they just walk away. You're right. And, and, and some of them, I mean, that is, uh, that is actually uh, um, something, a shameful act that people are making videos <clears throat> rather than trying to help people exactly. who, I was who just are about in trouble. About like I said, I love yeah. my social media. And you'll yeah. see a lot of people... You know, it could be a thief trying to steal a car or trying to rob a shop. And you just have bystanders just looking on, not really bothered or just recording it for a few yeah, views. Yeah, that's, that's and true. it reminds me because the founder of the Ahmadiyya community, who is Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him, actually even said that it would be a great shame, a great shame that if a Muslim was to call himself a Muslim yeah. and walk past the house of, let's say, a Hindu, for example, it doesn't even have to be a Hindu, it could be anybody. Anybody, and their yeah. house is on fire, yeah. or there is some problem with that, with that, and they just just ignore it, and they yeah. just walk on. How would this in any way be humanitarian or, or Islamic to speak? Even even he mentioned that he doesn't belong to my community. Yeah. If he if he does not help that um, that neighbor, yeah, he's whoever it is, or or for that matter, if somebody um, is being. Uh, tortured or is likely to be injured mm. by the by a group of people right. and you don't come out and help him out um, he says that the, that person does not belong to my community so uh, he has very strict this is the thing though right yeah, definitions because yeah while there might be a pocket of people who feel like you know what I don't want to help this guy my own business I don't want to get in trouble there are also people who will generally look at someone and be like that's not any that's not one of my own and it could come from it could stem from any kind of stigma it could be a racist bias it yep. could be a religious bias it could be none of them it could be it could be oh that's a woman oh that's a man that's a, I don't know who that is and this particular thing it can be a bias for for not wanting to help someone because you don't feel like they belong to you and that you belong to them which is what london is supposed to be this kind of multicultural massive harmonious family yeah, yeah and i think the holy prophet muhammad peace be upon him kind of puts this into perspective because where I feel this issue really stems from is that where we have differences of culture differences of opinion and we start feeling disassociated from others and we feel like that's reason enough for us to not really care about what the other person's going through but the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him has said that I look upon no one as an enemy I have the same love for all mankind as a mother has for the, the 
I think it's this the, is sorry. This is the this is the problem with Sire that Mirza Ghulam, who's the founder of the Ahmadi Muslim community, has said this. My mistake. That he has. I have the same love for all of mankind as a mother has for her children. I am only an enemy of false beliefs and untruths. Sympathy for all is a moral obligation and a duty. And I think this is really great. This is really grand because what this means is, is that obviously people are going to have differences. People will disagree on things ethically, morally, intellectually. But Dr. Tariq, is that really or a fundamental reasoning for why we should just walk by past somebody? Yeah, the thing is that the thing is that there is uh, there is also a tradition that you know that God appoints a leader from among you. Yeah. So if you are better people, your leader will be better. Hmm. So it because he comes out of you. Yeah. And we see here a few examples. For example, um, there is you know uh, according to Independent, half of the Tory members say. Islam is a threat to British life. Wow. You see, these are our leaders. Our world leaders having the biggest impact on people, such as Boris Johnson, mm. saying that Islamophobia is a natural reaction and that the Quran, uh, the, our uh, Muslim's holy book, is intended to provoke this. Um, and this is, that's been taken from Business Insider. And Donald Trump, he, he used to call to, to ban all Muslims from entering the United States. Mm. And after this, he tweeted on Twitter, the United Kingdom is trying hard to disguise their massive Muslim problem. Now, if the leaders think that way, you can just imagine that if comes down the line to the uh, to an individual, mm. a person, a common member of the society, you know how it will affect them, and how the thinking, particularly the children, you know, the children are they are, they, very naive. They, 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 they are very naive. They they will they will take the example of their leaders, You're and right. and they are impressed by that. And so whatever goes on in your home, the the children they they take over and they 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 just follow that. So, but we have the best example of the Holy Prophet, the Holy Founder of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, mm. that we have the practical example, how did he behave in different situations? Not only that, he, you know, once he is uh, 13 years of his life, um, uh, about 10, 10 years, 13 years in Mecca and 10 years in Medina. You know, you see, he, uh, he faced... Uh, very contradictory uh, situations. Once he was in a in a meek position where uh, his followers and he himself was being tortured. They were put like three years into a, hmm. a valley where nothing was available to them, nothing to eat. And then he, he came a situation where in Medina, when he went there, he not only was a religious leader, but he, he was also the political leader of a state. And he was governed by the precepts of Islam, particularly. And uh, but what did he do there? How did he rule there? How did he behave? Because there were people who were Muslims, there were Jews, exactly. there were Christians, and there were polytheists. So how did he behave there? That's what we have to look at, and we see that in that society, he created harmony, he created stability, he created justice. And people trusted him and came to him from all, all whatever they, their belief was, and they came with full trust that the justice would be done. And the Holy Prophet, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, he laid down a constitution which detailed the responsibilities of all parties which resided in Medina. Hmm. Their obligations towards each other and certain restrictions which were placed on each other. All parties were to obey what was mentioned therein, and any breach of its articles was regarded as an act of treachery. So 
the first article of the constitution was that all the inhabitants of Medina, the Muslims, as well as those who had entered the pact from the Jews, Christians, and idolaters were one nation to, to the exclusion of all others. All were considered members and citizens of Medina society, regardless of religion, race, or ancestry. Wow. People of other faiths were protected from harm as much as the Muslims, as is stated in another saying, which says, to the Jews who follow us be belong help and equity. He shall not be harmed, nor his enemies wow. be aided. So what a great principle on which he based this society. And that's why you know, people still look back not only his followers, but even the others, the politician, they look back how he created that particular society in Medina, which is actually an ideal society, which the world leaders should listen to and follow that and try to follow mm -hmm. in their own um, domain wherever they are. So this is, this is the compassion you see that brought uh, such a situation uh, which, is, which is ideal for everyone. Hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. Like I said, you you've basically described what a lot of these secular modern day countries aspire to be absolutely they will have a lot of slogans freedom equality equity the home of multiculturalism but are they actually you know saying what they doing what they say on the tin and this is the question because where we have a society today where i equally agree that there are people with so many differences at hand religious ethical moral and you know what I don't even think that we're arguing here that somebody isn't allowed to have those differences you can have those differences you can have those disagreements those Abs beliefs absolutely you have uh, you can have uh, your own belief yeah. and but but we should not harm someone just because what he believes is not exactly according to what mm. you believe that's right so you can have I mean, differences and you can live still with harmony with with peace and respect each other and respect uh, each other's honors and that's why um, you know the holy prophet of islam prophet muhammad may peace be upon him he was revealed in the holy quran as the verse of the holy quran it says that you know you you can come together on just one reason uh, one basis and that is that we all believe in one god okay so so ta'alo what is common among us we should come come together on the on the things which are common amongst each other and that will create peace and uh, that will uh, create harmony in the society you know the islamically the kindness and compassion they are very important to our faith and uh, the f the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community the holy uh, the promised messiah hazrat mirza ghulam ahmad qadian on whom be peace he had a great compassion for mankind as you mentioned earlier the love of humanity and forgiveness were two of his major characteristics and uh, you know in in his society that's what he himself did with his setting up his own example you know people would come to him and he would we try to help whatever you know whatever situation mm -hmm. and uh, i remember an incident that somebody you know some beggar came to the door and he you know he raised his voice to ask for some some help and the promised messiah some he was busy doing something he was probably he was writing some some book and uh, so he heard the voice and then somehow because he was too busy um, his intention was diverted to that one and later he realized that oh i i missed him i i didn't give him anything so uh, so he came out at the door he couldn't he couldn't see anybody That's right. so he he asked people to find that there was a beggar who came and um, so people went in search of him he did not uh, but they couldn't find him 
But later on, this beggar came again, and uh, the Prophet Muhammad he gave him something to help him, and uh, and then he thanked God that he could he did not miss the opportunity. Wow, I yeah. mean, I, yeah. that actually reminds me of a very similar incident of the same person, yeah. who's Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be upon him. He had a lot of guests in his house, and one of them left without eating. Simple thing, left without eating. He wasn't even a beggar. He was actually just normal, fine. Yeah. And uh, he left. And when the Prophet Messiah found out, he first, like you just mentioned, looked to see, can I, can I find this individual? Mm-hmm. Went outside, couldn't see him. And then he resorted to a walk towards where he knew he was going. And he walked for a very long time, found him and said, here's something. Now <laughs> you can go. And I think this is the compassion. This is absolutely fantastic. That uh, that reminds me of another incident. You know, uh, we we uh, as I mentioned, we had annual conference, and the first annual conference we, was held in in 1891. Oh well, 1891, uh, and uh, where 70 people attended in that conference, but it was like uh, people were invited, and then, and it's such an occasion, you know, because there was no uh, no f- formal arrangements. So what pe- people used to do is that they, they will give their own beddings to help people uh, so that, you know, because it was very cold and in, in, it used to be uh, held in December, um, very cold days and uh, people needed quilt. And uh, so he gave away all the, the quilts that he had in his own, oh, own really? home. And uh, one of the companions, he saw him that he was sitting with, you know, with the arms uh, around his uh, knees okay. and, uh, and, and just making himself warm without any quilt, without any um, uh, cover. And he asked him, oh, and because the, obviously he got very embarrassed that we have taken even his own quilt from him for the sake of the guests. And uh, he said that I will, I will make some arrangement. He, he was very uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, asking for, for forgiveness that, you know, we, we have done a mistake. And he said, no, no, don't, don't worry. You know, usually I don't even sleep and I have to say, say my prayers and I'll be, I'll be up in a few hours. So you don't, don't bother about that. Wow. So such was his compassion that nobody else. Uh, and there's so many incidences. You know, I, I remember another incidence now was that uh, there was a lady who who used to uh, 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 to cook in his house. Right. And this was, yes. And um, so so people uh, so once somebody found that he she had stolen, you know, some some bread or something. And um, so, so she was brought. Uh, obviously, people were, you know, talking harsh to her, and yeah. and he noticed that, and he said that, you know, leave her alone, you know, that, uh, you know, it is enough that she is, uh, you know, she she must be in need, and that's why she has taken it. And uh, at another instance, then some somebody was, uh, you know, asking for for a for a quilt. And uh, somebody said, "Oh, we know him. He's 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 a fraudulent person, and okay. he's, he's he's trying to obtain scalp without." Uh, and he said that, "Look, you should help him, because if he dies out of cold, you will be responsible. Whereas wow. if we if we help him, then we at least mm. we have done our job." Doctor, okay. I've got a serious question though. Yeah, this is a tough one. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's not that tough, one. Yeah. In London, because you mentioned it, and it just came to my mind. Yeah, people might be afraid to be compassionate because they might think it's a scam. Yeah, if you just follow me here. Yeah, like uh, could be a person asking for money. Oh, I'll run out of fuel in my car. I just need you to send me some money. I'll give you a, a ring in return. What should you? 
How should a Muslim really think about these situations? Yeah, I, I, I think that God Almighty has given you wisdom as well. Okay, mm. so where you find or you are, you are sure about that this is this is something scam, because uh, obviously you are you are supposed to use wisdom as well. Okay. There, then you should you should avoid that and you should spend your money or resources wherever you f you think it will go to the right person it will go appropriately and where you have a doubt about that then i think that you you, you should be cautious but wherever you are in doubt i think the, the the doubt should be for the benefit of the person who yeah, is yeah i think a, i think you're a, right and i think yeah. you can be clever about it too yeah because most people need help with you know i need something to buy food or whatever and you can just go and buy that food for them uh, yeah, if, yeah if, that's the wise thing. If somebody yeah. is asking for that, he's hungry, then if you feed him, that, that yeah. should be enough. Yeah. So you know, even in that situation, Muslims mm. should not just say no and go away. They should see, okay, let me see how I can help this person. Are they cold? Let, let, let's not, let's go and buy them, get them a blanket, like you said, a quilt, mm. and really genuine things that you can do for a person. And, and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, one one more thing is that, uh, you, you know, lots of uh, charities, you know, people donate and there, there, there is a lot of compassion, particularly about the British people. I remember Hazrat uh, Khalifa al-Masih the fourth, the the fourth Caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Tahir Ahmad. May Allah have mercy on him. You know, he he once mentioned he he said that the British people are very compassionate. Hmm. They and and you can see that the, the statistics because they give so much donation to the charities. Had they been, you know, hard-hearted, they wouldn't do that. So you can actually reach their hearts through compassion, mm. showing compassion as well, which is part of your faith. You are not doing anything to show off, but it is part of your faith. So you go out and you, and you reach them and you reach people who are in help. And just asking, sometimes people are feeling very lonely and just yeah. you, you go and ask them, you know, how are you do? how can I help? And, and things, and, and, and they will be very, you know, very thankful to you. And, and uh, so that's how you, you can show compassion. Yeah. So our, you know, our uh, humanity first, our charity, which, uh, which, which was created, of course, by him, it is, it is working world, uh, worldwide and showing the true compassion without any discrimination of race, uh, color, creed, whatever. And it's just they are out there. And uh, I've seen many people because they, they visit from Africa. And sometimes you know they are ministers, they are ambassadors. They come over here in, in our uh, uh, sometimes peace forums or on, on our uh, our annual conference as well. And they mention that you know I am not uh, an MD. I'm not a Muslim. I, I we are Christians, but it was the MDs whose in whose schools we have been educated. Oh, wow. We have studied there, and. They are really thankful to to the community that they they went out there and they helped without making uh, you know any any effect on their what they believed without even uh, you know nobody forced them that they should convert yeah. or they change their names or anything. So that is what impresses people, and that's why hmm. uh, you know, you know the, the compassion is the root it's, it's, to it's, reach the I, heart of I the can other see person. That. But what I've been trying to wonder, because you're mentioning all these nice things that people have done, that some of them are prophets of God, some of them are others, they've done really nice things. And I'm wondering, why would the average layman even want to do that? Why, why would they bother? And I've come to, because what I was thinking before is that, of course, Muslims, as Muslims, you do it because, okay, you want to seek the pleasure of God. Right, yeah. you, do, you either do it because of that or because you're fearful of God, that you're responsible for your people and that therefore you should fulfill your duties. But for the layman who may not even think like that, 
I'm thinking that the greatest thing is that because you mentioned humanity first and other things it's really just at the base level is the fulfillment of the task because I remember His Holiness Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed um, mentioned that you know Muslims celebrate Eid twice a year and Eid is basically a day of happiness and what people normally do on Eid is uh, they will you know eat nice food dress nicely meet up all of this kind of stuff and he reminded us that while this may seem like a joyous occasion in that sense, this is not true happiness. True happiness is going to be when you, on the day of Eid, can put a smile on somebody else's face. Absolutely. You go Absolutely. to, let's say, a child yeah. or a, 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 a very destitute person who's not doing well for themselves. And while someone might have gifted you something really expensive, you can give them even a meal. Yeah. The smile yeah. that you will see on that person's face will fill your heart with so much joy that's not comparable to anything else. And I think this is really why compassionate, yes, it helps the other person. But I think people underestimate how much it can help you, the person who's doing it in the first place. You see, the thing is that um, there is another golden rule, which is that, um, you know, and that that has been the guidance from the Holy Prophet of Islam, Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. You know, he, he said that, you know, you always, uh, you should want for others what you want for yourself. Right. And that is such a beautiful <laughs> principle. Yeah. And, you know, you can put yourself into others' shoes and you can just imagine what would be the best thing, you know, if I was in his position, what would I be happy with? Or, you know, you will be thankful to... And, and I, 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 you know, on, on a personal level, I can give you an example of our current head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmed. I've had a personal experience with him before even he became Khalifa, okay. that uh, I noticed that, uh, you know, he would go to the details and he would ask you for what even you might not have thought that I might need this. And he would ask, for, oh, you would need this. You are going there. You would need this. Take this from this place. And this kind of, and, and many times I, I noted that. And, and, and from that point, I realized that he is not an ordinary person because, you know, you don't go to that far that what you mm, should be thinking, he's thinking on your behalf <laughs> and then he's advising you that, you know, if you are going to that place, you will need this, this, this. So take this and he would help you that, you know, you should wow. make arrangements. And, and that's why I think this is something which, uh, which can make you reach the other's heart and you can win the hearts of people. But as you mentioned, it's not only to win the hearts of others, it is to have a pleasure yourself. And that's why people who don't believe in any faith, they still do the charity work because it brings them happiness. Yeah, it brings them happiness. The, a real and... joy of helping other, yeah. you know, when you look at a smile of somebody, you know, uh, again, I, I, I realize, as, you know, I, I have uh, read an incident where somebody was, he was a very rich person and he was asked that, you know, did, when did you get happiness? And he said that, you know, I've, 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 you know, I don't know how much money I have, but, yeah. you know, I, I sometimes give charity as well. But the real player I had was that somebody made me, uh, somebody suggested that uh, that such a, at such and such place, there are children who are um, you know, not very fortunate, that they are disab disabled and they are in need of wheelchairs. So if you can make arrangement for a wheelchair 
for them, that would be a great job. And he said that <clears throat> I arranged, I asked how many people need that, and I made the arrangements. And what they did was that they made an arrangement for that I should personally hand it over to, to the children. So he said when I went there, and every child, yeah. <laughs> when, when he got this wheelchair, I saw his face. Yeah. And I cannot imagine that I could be more happy ever when the, when I saw that smile in each child's face when he received this gift. So the thing is that it might, for him, it might be a very minor thing that he has. But the person who is receiving it, you know, you see, oh, it is going to change his life altogether. So sometimes a small thing can be very, very important to the person you're helping with. So compassion, you know, anywhere, uh, it is it is going to not only that it will it it also brings you happiness but it also brings you pleasure of allah which is you know as a muslim you think and i think that's the biggest reward that if god is pleased with you what else do you want no you're absolutely right it reminds me of the verse of the quran in this superficial kind of world where everybody looks to kind of showing off and doing things that you know for that for that kind of cause it says that as for those people and those things that benefit others they remain and their legacy remains in this world absolutely and that as for the the foam that foam that you see on top of the sea that little foam on the seabed that just disappears it goes away and the lesson that we, we can learn from this it really is is that people who are beneficial to other people they are like the, the, the water in the sea it's really deep so you can't always see it but it's, yeah, there. it's there and it's very beneficial for everything that's living inside it however the foam which is on top everybody can see the foam it's there to see it's famous like hey, wow look at me yeah. it's useless it goes to disappear so what it's trying to teach us is that it's not always that what you do superficially to show other people it will be the true thing that really ends up benefiting you and other people. And this is where we have to ask ourselves, am I doing something for the clout, for the fame, because I'll get recognized? Because that might end up making me like the seafoam. Or am I doing something because I want to help people and benefit people and that in return truly will build a legacy for me? See, the, the, the action, there is a there is a difference when... When you are you are doing it for the sake of the player of Allah, then you you don't care about if somebody is watching you exactly. or not. So, so you are on your own. You know you know that this person which I'm I'm helping today, I'm not I'm never going to see him again. I don't expect any thanks from him. I don't because he's not in a position to you to return my favor. But yet you do it because you do it for the sake of the player of Allah. But you say to please Allah because that is the guidance. And and you know the the principle, the motto which has been given by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community by their Khalif, the third Khalifa, and that's love for all, hatred for none. And that is where you know he he mentioned that we we hate the badness we okay. hate the evil we hate the bad deeds we but we don't ha hate any person okay. whatever he believes mm. whatever you know uh, community he belongs to uh -huh. we have love for okay. him that's why we say love for all right i hated for none i've got a question for you though yeah it's another kind of hard question yeah absolutely <laughs> so we talk about love for all and we talk about compassion but yeah. if you not only if you disagree with somebody but if you see someone doing something which you think isn't right number one but you think it's detrimental to them and mm -hmm. damaging to them. Yeah. How can you say that to them in a way that will not be 
in compassionate that might not come across as hate or no, or, or, or spite I, how I, do you do that yeah upon that your question i i remember one tradition of the holy prophet may okay. peace be upon him you know once once he said that you should help the uh, the oppressor as yeah. well as the one who is being oppressed okay so the companions asked you know how we can help the, the one who is being oppressed but how can we help the oppressor I said by stopping him. <laughs> see, okay. see, the thing is that if you see something being detrimental, so so you should stop that. That is that is the right thing to do. Okay. You know, in Islam, there is a very beautiful word which is called amale saleh. Okay. The right act. Yes. So it and and that is related to the appropriateness of time place, circumstances. Context, yeah. These three things are related and that is mentioned by the holy founder of the Amdiya Muslim community. His books, time and again, he has mentioned that whatever you do, it is to be considered seeing the, the situation in which you are. So the time, place, circumstances, they all matter. In what conditions, what did you do? Because he says that sometimes you see two good acts and you have to decide which one is better out of them. And sometimes you see an evil and a bad uh, and a good thing, and and you choose the, to do a good thing rather than a bad thing. Okay, so they, these are two, and every everything has the, is is own like um, uh, you can see the level at which uh, level of your level of righteousness, in which so so that's why your behavior should be according to the times, place, and circumstances that what is the right act to do, as if you're not stopping. For example, okay, uh, uh, he has given an example that like, for a, for, a, for example, a thief, you caught a thief. Now maybe you, know, you have to consider that whether he was a hungry and he has just stolen a bread, or whether he's a professional, and unless you punish him, he's not going to stop. So, the, so, so you have to see the the person and his history, and then make a decision whether you want to leave him or punish him. Because if he's a, he's he's going to develop that habit, the right thing is to punish him right away in the beginning, so that this does not take root into his heart, uh, this evil thing. So, what you're trying to say is that the 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 the, the, the intention at heart should be to help someone, to reform someone. Mm-hmm. And for that, whatever you think is necessary, is, that, is and appropriate right. thing to do. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes leaving them alone is better. Sometimes uh, you know, grabbing them and punishing them is better for them, okay. uh, so that they can be reformed. So, um, so this is this is one thing that some people think that the kindness. You know, you should always be kind. You should always be a yes man. Yeah. yeah. But, but the thing is that that is that is not. Being true. kind. That's not truly in being... In the true sense. Yeah. The kindness is, uh, and uh, the the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community has given a very beautiful example. Um, um, he said that, you know, a doctor sometimes give you, you know, as a, in a children, he gives you some sweet medicine uh-huh. to drink. But sometimes you develop an abscess. Abscess is when you develop pus under, underneath okay. your, your skin. And, and he said that unless he has to, um, you know, use his knife... To open it up, mm. you know, you are not going to get better. So mm. in that case, if he gives you sweets or sweet uh, yeah. medicine, is not going to help him. Yeah. He has to use his knife at that time to open it up. Although you will be hurt at that time, but later on you will you will be pray, praying for him that he did a good job for you. Is that what you told so, your patients? So, yeah. <laughs> so, 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 so that's why you have to you have to see in what circumstances you are doing a certain thing. Okay. Excellent. So yeah. I would just like to mention the the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya the promised Messiah, and Imam Mahdi, on whom be peace. He actually not only 
Uh, yeah, we see his practical example, but he also instructed his followers, and he says, and this is from his book, Noah's Ark, he said, Be kind and merciful to humanity, for all are his creatures. Do not oppress them with your tongue or hands or in any other way. Always work for the good of mankind. Never unduly assert yourselves with pride over others, even those who are placed under you. Never use abusive language for anyone, even though he abuses you. Be humble in spirit, kind and gentle and forgiving, sympathetic towards all and wishing them well, so that you should be accepted. There are many who pretend to be kind, gentle and forgiving, but inside they are wolves. There are many on the outside who look pure, but in their hearts they are serpents. You cannot be accepted in the presence of the Lord unless you are pure, both on the outside and inside. So such a beautiful teaching that, you know, you, you, can't, you can't deceive God Almighty because he knows you from inside out. So, so whatever, so you have to make change from inside. So if we can make change in, from inside on the individual level, because the individuals create a society. So the society which you will create will be a pure society, will be a compassionate society, and will be helping each other, trying to help you, uh, help others as well. And I remember, you know, one of the conditions of bath, the oath of allegiance, which is taken at the hand of the Khalifa, um, initially it was taken on the hand of the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, and later on it has been followed up by, the, by, the, by his caliphs. And one of the conditions is that you should always endeavor to do something beneficial for the Muslims in particular and for all mankind in general. You should try to do something which is of beneficence for the mankind. So, so this is part of our faith that you keep doing something. For example, you are working, you are doing research, um, uh, you are doing research for the benefit of somebody. Tomorrow somebody is going to benefit out of that. And so that your research is, is your worship, is a part of your worship. It's part of your um, oath that you have taken that you have. You should always be working in such a way so that it's going to be beneficial for for the mankind or generally for the creatures of God, hmm. be, because it is out of His love that you are doing it. So you see the intention. It it does matter a lot. Maybe people are trying to find uh, you know to 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 go to the moon. You know, doing the uh, space research. But if the intention is that that is that is going to benefit the mankind in future because we need more resources. This We are running out of the resources in this world. So that is why you are trying to do this. Then it be, it becomes altogether a different story. Yeah, of course. You're absolutely right. And it's like what you're trying to, what I'm trying to read from this is that intention really very much matters from an Islamic perspective. Uh, you know, you can overtly, superficially be nice, but if that's not your intention, absolutely useless. If you're doing it and... It might seem that you're being harsh, but your intention was to, like you said, as a doctor, perhaps cure someone, as someone else to help someone. That is really what matters. And we shouldn't be too overly concerned about what people think about yep. what we think we're doing and we'll be more concerned about really what God will think about that. And I just want to say that you did, I think, mention, allude to in, in the beginning as well about various charities are, are in existence. Some of them, for example, IAAAE, you have Humanity First. And I'm, I'm trying to wonder what drives these people to just go out here. Yeah, um, to I, I know they've been to various parts of the world, flood reliefs, 
the being build, building model villages in parts of the African continent, even in uh, in Africa, uh, in the uh, South America. Why do they do this? See, the thing is that, uh, of course, you know, you are uh, you're lucky being from from the African Muslim community, but in particular that you have a leader who guides you to do the do the right things at the right time. So I remember I have per, I've been personally I'm a member of the Humanity First okay. uh, um, charity as well, and uh, I happened to uh, I had a chance to go to Pakistan um, in 2005. There was an, a big earthquake okay. and lots of people they they died and so when we went there, we uh, you know we held a, a little camp a medical camp. We were all doctors uh, graduated from here. And um, of course, there was some admin as well. And we were just on the, by the side of the road with the tents. And we were sitting there and, you know, a, a lady came and uh, my friend, Dr. Dr. Amjad is his name, he's working here as well. Uh, he asked her that, you know, your village where you have come from, it's about two miles away. And um, they, they, you have a medical camp there as well. Why have you come all the way here? Yeah. And uh, and she replied, she said that, you know, you talk to us in a way which is human way. You consider us as humans. You talk to us with compassion and uh, you listen to us. And that's why I've, I've had this experience and that's why I've, I've walked all the way. Wow. I've come here just, just for that reason. Wow. Okay. <laughs> So, so see, compassion matters. How how are you talking to people? Maybe you can give medicine. You can give, you know, they, they might have more medicine. But uh, it's just that the way you show your compassion that, you know, where have you been? Where, you know, what happened? How, and, and then they would say, oh, I've, uh, I remember one per, another person, which I can't forget, is that his hand was broken from two places. Um, and um, so he had a little, uh, you know, dressing on it. And when we saw, I said, this is broken. You what, what have you been doing? I said, one week that, uh, you know, you have come now. And he said, he said I was burying my relatives. Oh, wow. See, just, <laughs> it was, you know, it was very overwhelming for us. You know, we couldn't resist our emotions there. Uh, and of course, you know, we, we try to help whatever. And we are. So when you go there, when you see these situations, then you uh, you imagine that uh, you know how beneficial you are when you are out there. You you may think that you know maybe I'm going for a, a week, two weeks. Uh, how, how how is it going to make a difference? But it does it does make a difference because you, your own experience of seeing these people wow. in person, okay. and then you and and that's why you <laughs> know as I said that people are so thankful to you when when they, when they have been educated in these schools. They think that you brought us light when we are in darkness. And now we are in a position that we can show, uh, we can come to these countries and we can guide these people. We are in such a position because they're ambassadors, they're ministers, and they're, and then these, uh, we have got very small hospitals and clinics there. I've worked in Tanzania and Africa for three years, and and I know that, you know, the, the, the people would come and they say, oh, I'm I'm going to die here, or you treat me, wow. because you know I, I I said that you know you you need a bigger hospital because we don't have that many resources, we don't have got facilities, um, and they said no no you have to treat me, and it was sheer blessing of Allah that you know with the prayers that they got better and they get, they have the percentage of people who are getting better was much better, and that is, that is because 
you know, when you are going out with a with a pure intention, then God Almighty helps you because ultimately He's the wow. one who gives you the cure as well. What I've been taking away from that is that you know sometimes you're like, is it gonna, is it worth it? Like, okay, I need to do this thing. Is it really gonna make a difference? Like you said, you yeah. went all the way to Pakistan. Yeah. yeah. I mean, here in the UK, you might think of even smaller things, and you yeah. you think to yourself, well, I. Okay, I need to say salam to this person. Is it doesn't matter? Is it really gonna make a difference? Uh, let me smile to the. Do I need to smile to this person? And I think what we don't realize is we don't actually know. Yeah. Just smiling to that person, they might be having a terrible day. Absolutely. And you just saying hello to them, how are you might change that day around Absolutely. for them. Absolutely. So this compassion cannot be taken lightly. Or for granted. Yeah, I mean, small things, they do matter. Yeah. They do, right? right. Yeah, I mean, if you can do anything in the day, if you want to feel like you did something today, it's just show a little bit of compassion to someone. And that matters so much. I mean, it's, it's free. Giving someone a smile, a nice gesture, saying hello. It doesn't cost anything on our behalf apart from that one mental block. Is it worth it? Absolutely. It is worth it. And then it that's it. Go ahead and do it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. One, one should not hesitate in just thinking that it's a small thing. There's nothing is too small. If you're doing it out of compassion, out of, uh, it will uh, give you, uh, you know, you, you will be, you know, benefiting yourself as well. That's uh, that's true. Wow. So, Dr. Tarek, you've been, like you mentioned that you've been in Humanity First. You were in Tanzania for three years. Seems like you've traveled quite a lot. Yeah, of course I have. Uh, what yeah. I've been trying to tap into in the past, <laughs> past 10 minutes is your kind of experiences on the field and kind of what you've seen and how compassion, whether it's to you or from you or from, from organizations, how, has, how have you really felt that it's impacted people's lives? Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, the people come to you because, you know, the, the other day I was talking to a, a friend of mine and it is, a, you know, the advice which was given by our current head of the Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Masur Ahmad, uh, may Allah be uh, his helper. You know, he, he advised that, you know, you if you want to convey your message because you, you take the message of peace to the world and you, you think that you have to bring people towards creator, and uh, and that is that is how you know the world is going to be saved to to bring them to the peace and the only way he said is that you have to win the hearts of people okay how can you win the hearts of people you know you can uh, that's small things you know you can smile at them just get, get an introduction to them and uh, you know if you are if you just ask them that you know uh, how are you you know how how have you, has your day been and 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 everybody has some some kind of a problem some kind of and if you are just able to listen to them maybe you can help them maybe you cannot help them maybe you can just give them a guidance that look this is this is the way i found this um you can get help from this uh, uh, source and so if you help them or you can invite him to a cup of tea at your home or maybe if you get more closer, you can invite them, your family, you know, on on, on a lunch or something. And, and, you know, then you don't have to convey the, your message, you know, with force or with anything. They they will ask by themselves, you know, you know, where do you come from? You know, who are you? Yeah, I'll be curious. <laughs> and they will listen to you. See, this is very simple. And, and, and that's, so, so what you are doing is that, you are not only helping them physically, but you, by introducing them to God, you are helping them spiritually as well, because they are devoid of a treasure, which uh, 
many a times has been mentioned by the, the holy founder of the Muslim community about God Almighty, that God is a treasure. And no matter what it takes, you should you should reach him and you should have a direct connection with him. You have you should communicate with him because he is there for you. And when you will need him, he will be there for you. So in whatever situation you are stuck somewhere and God will come to your to your help. And that is that is the purpose basically of your creation that you, you develop that kind of relationship with your God. And and that is what you are inviting people to. And uh, so so this is Sometimes people say, oh, you are, because you want to convey your message and that's why you do something good, some compassionate. This is not because we want to help them not only physically, but also spiritually. And that is yeah. why what we think is that what we have got is better than what they, what, what they haven't got. So we are offering them this as well, in addition. Absolutely. So this is really the intention of why you guys, Humanity First, IEEE, do exactly what you do. And uh, We're coming to the end of the show now. So I think it's really apt to kind of talk about the fact that even though we're talking about the fact that everybody does these things and they're not expecting any reward for it but God is the bountiful and he is the merciful and he does say in the Quran that the reward of goodness is nothing but goodness of course that the jazawul ihsan is ihsan that the reward of doing good is going to be good and this is something that inevitably for those of pe- those people who did it with the right intentions would certainly achieve as well and of course the uh, God Almighty also states in the Holy Quran that he who submits himself completely to Allah and is a doer of good, he has surely grasped a strong handle and with Allah rests the end of all affairs. So God Almighty here practically is setting us two basic fundamentals. That one is our service to God Almighty and then our service to do good to people. And this is something which a Muslim strives to do. A compassionate uh, worshipping person is what we call a Muslim this is basically what it is and we can hope like I said in the beginning of the show I mentioned that even though we, we live in areas where we would hope there's multi- multiculturalism kind of translated into a compassionate society but the fact that it doesn't is, is because of the fact that even though they might be people who are doers of good they are not necessarily those who are openly first and foremost submitting themselves to God Almighty with the consciousness that we are really all one big family and we owe each other something. Just one, you know, as we are concluding, I would just like to mention about uh, the holy founder of the Amni Muslim the promised Messiah. You know, such a great responsibility was, you know, he was appointed as a prophet of God and to guide people. And once his companion, one of his companions, Hazrat Malvi Abdul Karim, he states that when I, once I saw that he was at his home and there were uh, ladies who had come from the villages and um, and they were like asking for medicine and they had brought the children and there was a lot of noise and there was a, a lot number large number of people and for many hours the promise of himself so he kept on uh, giving them medicine he would choose one medicine ask the history and take it and so it took many hours and later on i asked him that you know you are you're a prophet of god you have so many responsibilities so um, so why are you wasting time on this and he said that this is also you know, these people, they are needy people. And I actually especially bring, uh, make arrangement that the medicine are available so that I can give it because there is no other arrangement. So I give them. And this is also part of my job. It is a part of my job, which I have been given that I should help people as well. And uh, being helping people is also a part of the prophethood. See, and we see the example of the Holy Prophet, of course, that all the time he was so compassionate and helpful to people. 
So one should not underestimate that we, if you are doing physically something and, you know, if you are going for prayers and you see somebody is in need, you should stop there and help them rather than going for prayers because God Almighty would like your act of helping that, that person rather than worshipping himself, also, although you can Absolutely. complete your prayers later on. That's it. This is it. This is exactly what the Islamic fundamental principles are, balancing your compassion, your duties to mankind and your duties to God. We've now come to the end of the show. And we, of course, started off the show in the first hour with child labor. And we had been speaking about the fact that this is something which is now prevalent in more economically developed countries and not only the LEDs that we normally hear about and how we can tackle this. And should we even tackle this? We came to the conclusion that the root issue of poverty and education of parenting is fundamental in solving these scenarios we then talked about compassion with Dr. Tarek and how in this society if we want to truly achieve it first and foremost we have to have a faith in God because that will result in us having a conscious responsibility for everybody around us regardless of whether we are rewarded for it or not we'd love to have the show today we'll be back next time and it's, as you always know it's always live you can always tweet to us after the show as well at Voice of Islam UK on Twitter and Instagram and when we are live you can always call us in at 0208 we're going to be back every single day Monday to Fridays from 4 to 6pm to bring you the drive time show to talk about various contemporary issues with an Islamic perspective and of course that was myself Kamar and Dr. Tariq today we're now going to break for the news and until next time Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah and peace be upon you